In fact, you can see the differences being drawn out here in verse 23, where we read about the immortal God and mortal human beings. Then in verse 25, where it's the creature is held up against the creator. And so because of this difference, we have to be really careful not to import some of our cultural beliefs into the text, which means that we're going to have to walk through the text pretty slowly and trace what Paul is saying. And how we're going to do that is, is to go through it once and draw out the, the big argument. And then we're going to go through it again and, and pick out some of the subtleties. And then we'll finish this evening by thinking about how this passage affects us. So if you have a journal there, it's going to be really useful to underline and to highlight and to take notes as, as we go. To keep that argument straight in your head. So let's, let's dive in. Look with me to verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed. And notice it's being revealed just like the righteousness of God was being revealed in verse 17. From heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness. Or there, more literally than, than wickedness, we could say unrighteousness. So against all the godlessness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness, since what may be known about God is plain to them. Okay, so in these two verses, we get the, the interpretive key for the rest of our passage. So, so mark that down in your journals in some way. Because what is up for grabs here, what this tells us is what is up for grabs is truth. It's knowing God. On one hand, we have God righteously revealing, making plain, making himself known. And on the other, we have people who unrighteously suppress the truth, live according to their standards, and deny what God has made plain. So God is righteous and in truth. These people are unrighteous and suppress the truth. So note that down. The overarching idea here is of people suppressing the truth, of denying what God has made plain, and so walking away from righteousness. And you can see how Paul explains that further. Look with me at verse 20. For, and I'll just say for, that's always a good word to underline to, to see how Paul is going to expand the argument as we go forward here. For since the beginning of creation, God's qualities have been clearly seen and understood. So what's he saying here? Well, he, he's saying that the fact that there is a creator, that there is a God is obvious. That the book of nature is open and everyone is able to read it. That there is a sense of the divine within us that everyone feels and everyone longs for, even if we try and satisfy it with different things. We can plainly see that there's something beyond us. And so no one can have an excuse not to be searching for God. Even those isolated tribes, people who, who have never heard the gospel, they can look about creation and see that there is a God. This is what God has done. He has he's left his fingerprints all over creation. That is how God has made it plain. That is what the four in verse 20 points to. But then follow with me in verse 21. We get another four. And this time this four is explaining why the wrath of God from verse 18 is being revealed. They neither glorified him as God 
nor gave thanks to him. Instead, and, and if you read this slowly, you might hear the, the dripping contempt that Paul has here in verse 23. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images of human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Glory for images, immortal things for temporal things. So, so can we see the argument here? God has made himself obvious through creation. Man suppresses that truth and so rejects God, neither glorifying him nor thanking him, and instead, instead tries to create his own rules, his own truth. Verses 24 onwards are almost held up as, as consequences of this, of the dominoes that fall after they have done this. And, and we're going to come back to look at them. But, but just before we do, I'm going to ask you to just to think a little bit here. So, so remember the context here. We have a divided church, Gentile Christians on one hand, Jewish ones on the other, both bickering over who is in the right. So let me ask you this. Who do you think that the Jewish Christians assume that Paul is talking about? It's pagans, isn't it? It's Romans, it's the, it's the Gentiles, the people who don't have the law. It's in the style of other Jewish writings about pagans. It certainly mentions the normal criticisms that the Jews had about the other nations. And just look how many times Paul says they. Right? Even if we take this just from, from verse 28, underline with them, with, with them with me if, as I read. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved man so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of evil, envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding. And so the Jewish Christians look to their Gentile brothers sneering as they get the telling off that they deserve. We knew that they weren't in the right. We knew that they should be more like us. And as we read that verse out as well, probably all of us have some type of person in mind right now. A rival faction, someone that we disagree with. And I, this is one of the places where, where our, our chapter headings are, aren't very helpful for us. Because if you turn to the next phrase, which is chapter 2, verse 1, what does it say? Someone shout out for the first word. You. You, therefore. Not, not them, but you. Think back to, to David and, and Nathan, where Nathan tells David the story of the rich man who killed the poor man's only sheep. David tears his clothes in outrage and demands that the rich man be put to death. And what does Nathan say to him? You are that man. Paul says here, you are that man. I am that man. Not, not some outgroup not some distant enemy. The wrath of God that, that I was just cheering on 
the punishment that I was looking at others and saying, yes, Lord, they deserve it. It wasn't, that wrath wasn't for a rival faction. It wasn't for someone that I disagree with, not someone else. It was for me. It was for you. It was for the Jewish Christians who had the law and knew that they couldn't keep it, but yet were placing burdens upon the Gentiles so that they would look and act a certain way and make the Jews, the Jewish Christians feel more comfortable. Hopefully you can see this is a rhetorical sledgehammer. It's Paul showing both factions in the church that they are utterly united, completely in the same boat. For where in verse 17, we saw that the gospel revealed the righteousness of God. Now we see what is revealed is the extent of sin in man, of all mankind. Because here we see that those who pass judgment are doing the same things. In a minute, we're going to go back over those th what those things are and, and think about the specifics of them. But before we do, we need to have it crystal clear that Paul is not giving them a group to bash here. Instead, he is saying that they are all sinful, that they are all condemned, that all of them fall into that category of unrighteous. And so whether we are at one end of that line or the other end, it's still a line that goes straight to hell. Write this down somewhere in your notes. Left to ourselves, we are all unrighteous. This is the big picture argument here. For the Romans, the Jewish Christians have no reason to boast in their traditions because even in them, they are unrighteous. And the Gentile Christians have no reason to boast in their newfound license because their new faith should show them how unrighteous they are. So what should unite them is that they're all in a desperate need of a savior. And yet for us, even as we might accept what Paul is trying to do here, what he is saying to the Romans, that doesn't always hit us in our context. Because we here don't think that, that falling out over music choices or style of service or, or things not being the way they once were are on the same moral lines as the things that Paul mentions in verses 24 onwards. Oh, our sinful hearts are so tricky, so clever at twisting and bending to avoid this landing on us. We are good, upstanding people. Surely we are not the people being described here. And so we fall into Paul's trap. We create these groups the same as they did, righteous and unrighteous. And we place ourselves firmly in the righteous camp, allowing us to look down and condemn other people, even if those other people are some of our brothers and sisters. But that's not Paul's point. That's not the argument. Let's go over this again. Look with me to verse 22. They claim to be wise, but exchange God's glory for man-made idols. So here, here's the first category that, that Paul establishes, idolatry, putting something else above God. 
Calvin said that our hearts are idol factories, taking good things and worshiping them instead of God. Career, family, health, tradition, security. We can make them the most important things in our lives and so exchange the glory of God for the image of the perfect life here. You, me, we are all disposed to rebel against what is really obvious in this world that we aren't God, that God is in control, that he gets to decide what is right and what is wrong, that he, that he does get to decide what his church looks like. Our natural state constantly tries to reorder this truth. We suppress the truth that we aren't in control by, by placing so much trust in our finances or in our lifestyle that we can, be, that we can fool ourselves into thinking that we have ordered our life in such a way that gives us security. That by our wisdom, we have taken control over our lives. Even if we don't say it out loud, we have claimed to be wise, haven't we? We have exchanged the glory of God, living in dependence on him for shiny trinkets and filtered photos. In your heart of hearts, can't you see somewhere where you, where you are suppressing the truth? Were you trying to invert that, that vertical relationship and control your life rather than let God be God? That, that, that's the vertical relationship. But Paul goes on to the, to the horizontal as well. Look with me to verse 24. Therefore, so, so again, because they're suppressing the truth about God, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity, and verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Now, here's where we have to hold really tightly to Paul's argument. God has revealed things. Man has suppressed the truth. And where God revealed things about himself, man suppressed the truth of that. Therefore, because they did this, because the vertical relationship was rejected, God allowed them to destroy the way that he created us to relate to one another. So what we have here is an example of how we have rejected God's will for the horizontal relationships as well. And in doing so, verse 25, they exchange the truth about God for a lie. So, so the truth about God, you can underline that and note that the truth here is that he is God and has decreed a way for us to relate to one another. The truth of God gets thrown away. Now look to verse 26. Because of this, which is referring to rejecting the truth of what God has revealed concerning us, they followed the desires of their flesh rather than the order that God has made plain. Now the rest of verse 26 and 27 obviously refer to the homosexual acts, but the point is not to hold that up as the greatest of all sins but rather as a category for how we suppress the truth that God has made plain. Think about it as a species, it's pretty clear who is supposed to pair up. There's, there's not a lot of confusion about how to procreate. God's design gives us a clear path to follow. But if you have a worldview that rejects God's truth, that says biology is sort of a, a random process that we shouldn't be bound by, then you're going to see things differently. Can we see how this fits into the overarching argument? 
God has made things clear. Man has rejected that truth. Paul outlines how God made our vertical relationship with him clear, then tells us how we reject that and live as if we are in control, and then gives us an example of making idols. And then here, he shows us how God has made our horizontal relationships clear, how we reject that and live that according to our desires. And then he gives us an example of that with homosexual acts. So in the same way that we would say, just because I have never made a carved image and bowed down to it, doesn't mean that I'm not at risk of rejecting the truth that God has made clear in regards to our relationship with him. We shouldn't say that just because we aren't same-sex attracted, that we don't fall into this same category of rejecting the truth that God has set out for how we are to relate to one another. You see here, homosexual practice, although sinful, does not cause a breakdown in relationship with God. Rather, it is one of the many potential symptoms of someone whose identity is not in Christ, of someone who is rebelling and suppressing the truth that God has revealed. And we can see this if we look to verse 28. Furthermore, so, so again, underline that to help you remember Paul's argument because this clause here opens up another consequence of, of what comes from rejecting what God has revealed to us. So rather than a consequence of Acts from, from verses 26 and 27. So furthermore is like saying here, here here's, the clause, here's, here's the cause, then this happened, verses 26, 27, and also this happened, verses 28 to 32. So furthermore, they did not retain the knowledge of God. They do what ought not to be done. Every kind of unrighteousness. Do you ever do anything that is less than righteous to each other? Evil, greed, depravity, envy, murder, which Jesus explained to us as anger any of that here strife wouldn't that one hit home to a church that is divided gossips slanders haters of god i think that one means people who who reject what god says because they just dislike it is that you are you arrogant and boastful it's a it's a, it's a pretty expansive list here isn't it disobeying their parents Ooh. That's got to hit some of us hard. Because we reject how God has set out us for how God has set out for us to live, how we are to treat and interact with one another, we fall into this category too. Paul doesn't allow us to think that as long as we guard against homosexual acts, we'll be okay. He shows us how we all at times reject his ways and try and construct our own ways of interacting with people. We might know that we shouldn't gossip, but we suppress that knowledge and bend the rules in this, just this one situation. We know that we are here in church as worshipers and not consumers, but we suppress that knowledge so that we can shop around and find somewhere that caters better for our specific desires. We know that we should be in community, but those people over there just look too different and we wouldn't know what to say. So maybe it's okay just to ignore them this week. 
I've been sitting with this all week, trying to see a way that this passage doesn't just hit me squarely in the chest. I've been subconsciously trying to, to weasel out of Paul's logic, trying to find an excuse for those ways in which I try and subvert my vertical relationship with God and control things. Of some reason to justify those times when I ignore how God has set out for us to live with one another because it makes my life easier. And yet, as the text says, I am without excuse. It'd be so much easier if we could just see this as an in-grip and an out-grip so that I can just point my finger. But all I hear rattling around my head is you are that man. Paul shows the Romans, this, this divided church, that they are all entirely in the same boat. It's not just that some of them really need Jesus, but the others need a little bit of Jesus just to tidy things up. It's that they are all hopelessly lost, that they are all unrighteous, that in their personal relationship with God and in their communal relationships with each other, they are suppressing truth and turning from him and that God is now revealing to them his wrath. All those things they've been fighting about, the changes, how things used to be, what's the best way forward? They're all blown away and forgotten as they gaze in fear and dread at what is revealed to them. Imagine being proud and certain of your righteousness in an argument, suddenly realizing I'm not good. I'm not righteous. I cannot claim the upper ground. I am lost and I need Jesus. Paul removes the bickering by showing them their true problem. Now, this is a difficult passage to take. It's difficult to emotionally engage with. But what does it mean for us, my unrighteous brothers and sisters? For us who have been declared as if we were righteous, even though we are not? Haven't we passed over this bad news now that we are in Christ? Why would we even consider this since Christ has ultimately and completely removed our sin? Shouldn't we just focus on the good news? Why spend so much time hammering this point home? Well, one thing that this verse should do to us is to help us gain perspective. To realize that the thing that we should most be worried about is not what the church is doing about the youth or, or the welcome center or the music or the preaching or the organizations, but about our own sin. Beloved, don't you realize that we come here to be blessed by God? That we come to gather as he commanded us to do the things that he has commanded us for the purposes that he has set out. This isn't a performance. It's, it's not meant to please you. It's meant to bless you and to help you consider your Lord. If we neglect the bad news, if we don't remind ourselves time and again that we are saved by grace alone and nothing to do with us because we constantly sin, then we will become an entitled, consumeristic, 
self-righteous mess. It is the weight of our own sin, as uncomfortable as it might be, that brings us back time and time again to our need of a savior. So if you're here tonight and you aren't a Christian and all this has just seemed really, really, really oppressive and judgmental, it's probably because God is convicting you of your own sin, of those places where you have suppressed the truth that he has revealed to you and followed your own way instead of his. And if that is you, let me just say, the bad news is not the end of the story. Because although through the, go the gospel, God's righteousness has been revealed and our sin has been revealed, Jesus came to span that gap to make a way for us to come to God and to receive his love. It was Jesus who took all our sin and swapped places with us so that we could take part in the righteousness of God. He took all your sin. He emptied out the cup of wrath, every drop of it that you deserved. He drained it dry. And in its place, he offers you streams of living water to satisfy your soul. Not because of what you have done, but because he is righteous. Our God is so good to us in his mercy that he offers us his grace freely. He offers it to those who accept that they need him and trust in him. So if that's you, don't just slink away after, but come up and, and chat to us. But, but if you are a Christian here, don't dismiss this bad news as just being irrelevant. It is a reminder to us of how much we need Jesus. Not just as a Sunday morning thing, not just as part of a, of a list of things that we might believe, but as a continuous ache in the heart that brings us back time and time again to look to the cross. So that when we are arguing amongst each other, we are drawn back to the cross and we talk with humility. When we are frustrated with how things are here, we take that frustration to the Lord rather than ra lash out against each other. When we think about what the church needs or what the young people need or what the internationals need, we aren't distracted by, by new trends or modern concerns, but we are consumed by their need for Jesus. Realization of that need should lead us to, to prayer, to, to worship, to mission. It should set the trajectory of our lives and how we make decisions. It is the necessary backdrop to let us see the glory of God. Now, now I realize this evening that this has been heavy for some people. It, it might have hurt some people. People might be wrestling with, with, with things that they've brought here. And I realize as well, it's not the sort of topic that, that we're going to skip out the tea and coffee and, and merrily have a chat over. So I just want to give us a bit of time now to, to process all that's been said, to, to reflect on God's word and, and where the Spirit might have been prompting you this evening. And so what we're going to do is, is leave a bit of room for that now. I'm, I'm going to pray a little, and then I'm going to pause a bit, and then I'm going to pray and, and pause again a couple of times. 
And after that, the band are going to come back up and we're, we're going to sing and worship. But in those times of silence, you can journal, you can pray, you can reflect, whatever you feel drawn to. And then after that, as I say, Mark will come back up and we'll worship together. But for now, let's still our hearts just a little. Let's look to our Lord and let's pray. Oh Lord, we need you. Sin has deceived us and brought us death. Our hearts have been hardened by it and we have been lured and enticed by our own desires. We thought we were getting freedom, but turning from you just made us slaves of corruption. Our pride and our hearts have deceived us, have caused us to suppress the truth that you have made plain. In so many ways, we have despised you and laughed at obeying your voice. Without your help, we bicker and grumble against one another. We are filled with anger and hatred and strife. We cannot love each other as you have commanded us. We cannot worship you as you deserve. Show us our sin, Lord. Show us the areas where we are deceiving ourselves and suppressing the truth. great Savior. We know that we are not worthy, that we don't deserve the grace that you have shown us, and yet we are amazed that you take our place, that you offer us life. We know that we need a Savior and that you alone can rescue. So we ask that you illuminate our hearts and lives now so that we can see the effects of your great gospel in all that we do. Help us repent of where we are deceiving ourselves, Help us to throw ourselves at your feet. Help us to see the truth. Lord God, show us your truth. Show us what we have been trying hard to ignore.
Lord, as dark as the pit that we are in is, nothing can overcome the light of your glory that you give to us. Nothing can condemn us now that you have declared us to be your children. We stand in awe at what you have done, how you have saved us, adopted us, sent your spirit to live within us. And so all that we can do is to turn to you in humility and in worship. Because as deep as our sin is, your grace is deeper still. So Lord, let us not be overcome by our sin, but let us rejoice in your glory that overcomes it all. Let us respond in love and worship to you. Let us go out to this world with that message of hope that is available to all, even as they suppress the truth about you. And let us look to one another, knowing that we are the one people of God, that your gospel has made it so. Heal us, Lord, we pray. Show us your truth. And let us be so caught up in you and in all that you are and all that you've done that our hearts are filled with love and with joy.